Well, awesome. I want to welcome all of you out this morning. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. Uh, as we have seen in this video, um, we have been in a series in the past, I think it's been four weeks, so this will be the fifth week of the series. We've been in a series called Neighboring, and uh, as that video kind of alluded to, uh, what we've been doing in this series is really working through uh, what does it look like for a Christ follower or for, or for somebody who loves Jesus, loves God, what does it actually look like to be reaching out actively to, to the people who are, as the video said, um, in our natural pathway of life? So again, we're talking about somebody or people that we meet every day, people that we connect with on a frequent basis, but ultimately starting to think through this idea of the fact that God may actually want to use us to connect the gospel message, to connect the story of Jesus with somebody around us. Um, I think what we've said in this series is, uh, is really good, and we could put that up here on the PowerPoint, if you will. Uh, what we've said in this series is we've kind of had like a guiding principle or a guiding thought process that we want to be thinking through, we said this, uh, what if we were a church? What if we weren't just a people that went to church? So typically, we can understand, like in our modern context even, we can see this idea of just going to church as something that we do. We come into this place, we connect, we hear a sermon, maybe we connect with some great music, and then we sort of leave this place um, relatively unchanged in terms of how we connect with other people. But what if, in this series, what if we weren't just a people who came to church and went, but what if we were actually a church that went out to people? So what if we were a people that actually reached out as a church? What if we were a church that went to people? Um, I think this, this series has been incredibly impactful and challenging for me in these last four weeks because I think what's happening is, and if for those of you who call yourselves Christ followers, I think what happens is if we call ourselves that, um, we have had some history or baggage or we come to the table with some presuppositions when we think of words like evangelism, right? Or when we think about these phrases that we would call either sharing the gospel or sharing the story of Jesus or even a phrase that we might have heard before if we're a Christ follower and we've been in the church at least for some degree or, or for some degree or some point in time. Um, I think when we, when we as Christ followers think about some of these words, evangelism, sharing a story, or like even just inviting someone to come to church, I think we actually come to that with a lot of baggage. And, and I think what this series has done, <clears throat> especially in the last four weeks, is it started to reorient a little bit the perspective that we had on what it might actually mean to be used by God to land the gospel in someone else's context. So um, if you are not a Christ follower or if you're a guest with us today, I, I'm going to just say this right off the bat, that where we're going today, specifically in the passage that we're going to be talking about, where we're going um, is very much a conversation that uh, I think God wants to issue, if you will, to Christ followers. So if you are a guest with us today and you haven't been able to connect with this series up until this point, or if you're not a Christ follower, I'm just going to say that right off the bat, but here's what I don't want you to do. If, if you're not a Christ follower, if you're apathetic to Jesus, or if you're opposed to Jesus, or if you're just investigating Jesus, what I don't want you to do at this point is just check out, because here is an incredible opportunity actually for you to peer into a conversation that we as Christ followers have in accordance with what we feel like God has said in the Bible about the idea of reaching people for Christ. 
So if you're not a Christ follower, peer into this conversation a little bit because it's going to do it's going to do a couple things for you. First of all, it's going to give you an opportunity to better understand why it is that Christians have this seeming need to let you know what the story of Jesus is, what the gospel is, and, and this idea that you might think that uh, Christians are really just out to, you may have used words like proselytize, or Christians are really just out to to uh, persuade me to receive this message, to kind of manipulate me into this message. I think what this is going to do, the conversation we're going to have today out of the scriptures, what it's going to do for you is it's going to give you a better idea of why weird Christians <laughs> do the things that they do and why uh, Christians are so intent on reaching other people with the story of Jesus. Um, and as always, I will also say this as we begin this morning. If you haven't been able to check out the series on neighboring thus far. If you're either a guest, this is your first time here with us, or if you've uh, been away, or you've had some things that have been preventing you from getting involved in this conversation. I'll also say that what we're going to be talking about today, in, in many respects, can stand alone. So there's no prior context in the previous four weeks that we've covered that is going to uh, prevent you from being able to really connect with where we're going today. So again, just want to encourage you to stay engaged. But if, if I'm now kind of... Um, from now kind of pivoting or shifting the conversation or the direction of the conversation to Christ followers, I, I would probably say this, that um, I think as I've been having conversations with a lot of you, and, and as I know that this series has been pretty challenging for me, or the concept of neighboring as being challenging for me, I think, I think the reason, or, or I think the series is so challenging, and in my conversations with you, it's, I'm hearing some of this, some similar things, I think uh, that the series is challenging, not because innately is there something really tricky or hard about the idea of neighboring itself. Again, as, as we saw from the video, really what we're talking about with neighboring is making a real, authentic, tangible connection with the people in our path of life, with the people that are around us, with our neighbors, with those that we probably should be sharing life together, those next door to us, those across the street, those we even meet in the grocery store. Um, I think this series has been really challenging for me and for a lot of you because we can acknowledge that neighboring is not a tricky or a hard thing. I think what's been really challenging for us with the idea of sharing the story of Jesus with someone else in terms of connecting with another person in their pathway of life is because that form or way or method of evangelism is largely foreign to our experience. So again, if you call yourself a Christ follower and you have any history at all in the church, what you've heard in terms of evangelism or sharing the gospel has probably not been this. Uh, historically, uh, sharing the gospel, we, we bring to it, we probably bring to this idea of neighboring or evangelism um, a heavy deal or a heavy dose of baggage because if I'm honest with myself, and again, if you're a Christ follower and you're honest with yourself, we all at some way or some point in time or another, I think we've all gotten just a little weak in the knees when we think about the idea of evangelism or sharing our faith. We all get a little weak in the knees, weak in the knees in that, and I think, I think that some of us have been so attentive or so plugged into this series because neighboring is radically redefining how we think about sharing the gospel with someone else. So I think we've been attentive for that reason. And I want to ask the question, 
just briefly for, for the Christ follower in the room who's been connected with the series. I'm going to ask the question, why we think, why do we think it is that neighboring seems like such a foreign concept? Why do we think that is? And I'll actually offer a couple of suggestions to you, and, but I think behind all of these suggestions, I want to say one thing, as I think, I've already mentioned it, I think a lot of times when we come to the idea of evangelism or sharing our faith or sharing the gospel, we come to this idea with a ton of baggage. We come to this idea with a load of presuppositions. I mean, I think, if I'm thinking about myself and if I'm honest with myself, I actually think in my mind that sharing Christ with another person involves one, some, or all of some suggestions here that I'm going to give you of the following. So if we start thinking about sharing the story of Jesus, if I'm, if I'm real with myself, sometimes I get sidetracked and I just bring this baggage in and I think that if I'm really going to be effective in sharing the story of Jesus, I have to be eloquent. I have to have wise and persuasive words. I have to have like rhetorical ability. I have to have the ability to speak in a profound way that is really inspirational so that the person will see me, hear my words, and suddenly have it dawn on them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that if I don't have that rhetorical ability or I don't have that skill in being able to communicate, that probably is a sign that I wouldn't be very good at this idea of evangelism. Or maybe I'm, not, I'm probably not going to be effective in sharing my faith if I can't actually speak well or if I can't be persuasive or convincing in my speech. I think for the Christ follower, often, if we're thinking that way, if we bring that presupposition again to the table, we'll probably just say, well, evangelism is for someone else. Evangelism is for the person that, uh, that can speak really well or that can stand up on a stage and communicate very clearly. Some of us, honestly, if we're going to be real, some of us bring that presupposition to the table. We think that. I think there are a lot of us in this room that when we think about, if you're a Christ follower, that when we think about evangelism, we also probably assume from time to time that we need to have the appropriate training and equipping to be able to share our story or to share the story of Jesus. And I think the mistake there is, yeah, I think we need to be trained and equipped and that's all helpful and good. But I think we believe that training and equipping equals having some kind of higher education or seminary degree. That if I'm not actually fluent in the concepts of the Bible, if I'm not kind of at that master's degree level, that I'm actually probably disqualified from being able to share my faith. I probably won't be able to do it well, so I either won't do it because I don't want to, because it's weird and it's awkward, I don't know that much and I don't feel like I'm equipped. We either won't do it or we'll shy away shy away from doing it. And I think that's part of the baggage. I think there's another, there's another kind of set of, uh, set of assumptions that we'll bring to, to the table as well. And I think it ha actually has to do with a spiritual telepathy. <laughs> I think there are a lot of us, myself included, that, that believe that in order to share the story of Jesus with someone else in an effective or an impactful way, that somehow I have to be like telepathic and I have to know exactly where the other person is at without them communicating anything to me first. Like, I have to be so in tune spiritually or psychic that I'm able to know what their issue is, what their struggle is, 
where they're resistant to Jesus. And without them saying a word, I am then able to instantaneously share the story of Jesus and kind of get the wow factor like, oh man, they, they know exactly what's going on in my mind. They must be sent from God and therefore the story that they're telling me, this message about Jesus must be true. I think that's baggage that we bring to the table. Um, and I, I think another thing that we bring to the table, I think this is huge. If you're a Christ follower, I think you'll resonate with this. Sometimes we bring to the idea of evangelism or sharing the story of Jesus, sometimes we bring this idea that we have to know every single ounce or morsel of the Bible in order to be able to share our faith effectively. So what we'll do more often than not is say, I don't know enough of the Bible. We'll use that as an excuse. I know I have done that in my own experience. Use it as an excuse to say, and really what, what that is is motivated out of fear, right? There is this innate fear that I am going to start communicating the message of the gospel to somebody and suddenly they are going to respond with a question that I cannot answer from the Bible. I don't know the response. I don't know the answer. Translates into, in our presupposition, the stuff that we bring to the table in this neighboring or evangelism thing. And we bring that idea that, okay, I don't know enough of the Bible, so I probably shouldn't be engaging anyone around me in sharing the story of Jesus. I think that is a legitimate presupposition. And here's the thing. Here's the thing with that. Let's just, let's just clear the table here. I do know everything that there is to know about the Bible. Right? I know it from cover to cover. I could recite it. I just don't want to right in this moment because it'll take too much time. So just bear with me. But so I do know everything about the Bible, but I'm going to tell you this. Even the, and I'm just kidding, obviously, but even the greatest scholar that knows and has memorized the most amount of scripture in the history of humanity still carries that small little fear that there's going to be that one question that they're not going to be able to provide an answer to right away. And I think what that does with that presupposition, what we bring to the table again prevents a Christ follower from really connecting in a neighboring way, from connecting in relationship with somebody. And then finally, I think another piece of baggage that some of us bring is we assume that in order to do evangelism and in order to do it effectively, we actually have to be a great conversationalist. We have to be able to strike up conversation and we have to be able to be that kind of person that's a socialite. That if we're not a socialite, we really can't connect with people, so we might as well not try. But, but if, we were, if we were just a socialite, if we could just continue to carry on a conversation, and by the way, um, we think this because more often than not, have you, have, we, we think through this, uh, these, these, these portraits that we have in our history. Have you ever uh, connected with someone who is just not a talker? And so you ask an open-ended question, which would be a question that would uh, solicit or elicit a yes or no answer, or not a yes or no answer, something more than that. So you ask an open-ended question like, well, how many times a week do you visit the Y? And they're like, yes. Okay, well, um, well, how do you feel? How do you feel about what's going on in the news today? No. Well, that's good. It's all right. It's, it's concerning. So we, we think that we, we've all had those moments where we're like, uh, awkward. I don't quite know how to continue this conversation. So we assume that in order to have a conversation with someone about Jesus, even in our natural pathway of life, we bring to the table this assumption 
that we have to be some kind of great conversationalist. All of these, some of these, or maybe just one of these, I think are historically what we've brought to the table. And I think if we were to dwell on these perspectives or what we bring to the table, I think, honestly, it's probably easiest just to say, like, I quit. Like, if it really is about eloquence or rhetorical ability, if it's about having a seminary degree, if I need to be effective, I need to be some spiritual, telepathic, psychic guru that knows what somebody else is thinking, that I have to know everything about the Bible, or that I have to have a winsome personality, or that I have to be a great conversationalist. If that's true, if that's required to reach somebody for Christ, then it would probably be easiest just to say, I quit. It's easy in that respect to just abandon or to shelve the gospel message because if I'm honest with myself, if it's done this way, it not only doesn't work, but I don't want to do it because I'm just scared. I'm just scared. And maybe for the few of you who have been brave in following Jesus, maybe you've tried it with some of these presuppositions and it didn't work out that well because... Success is measured in how many people respond positively to you and to the gospel rather than what we've been talking about in this series, Neighboring, which is success is making a real, meaningful connection with somebody in your pathway of life. We've talked in this Neighboring series about how what if you simply took the first step to, know, to reach out to those around you and simply know their name? Simply know their name, knowing their name as a means to digging in deeper into making a real and authentic relational connection. So obviously, if you're a Christ follower, one, at least one of these probably resonated with you as you think through this idea of, of evangelism or reaching someone for Christ. And so obviously, these things are extremely or highly dysfunctional. These perspectives are baggage. They're not What's required of us is to check in this baggage with what's in the scripture about what God may actually have to say about what neighboring or making a meaningful connection with somebody or or embodying or sharing the gospel story, what God would have to say that actually looks like in our modern context. And so I would argue this, that if we have these dysfunctional approaches or perspectives toward evangelism or sharing the story of the gospel, I will always argue that the approach to dysfunction is never destruction. The approach to dysfunction is never destruction. So if we bring these dysfunctional attitudes, the response should never be to simply quit evangelism or to say it's irrelevant or improper and discard it and shelve it. But instead, the approach to dysfunction, rather than being destruction, is to find that one pivotal thought that if that thought were altered for us, it would change the entire ball game. It would reorient our perspective around this idea of evangelism or what we've called neighboring. So I would argue again that the, the approach to dysfunction is not to destroy reaching people for Christ. It's actually instead to discover what God actually means when he is asking us as Christ followers to reach someone for Jesus. It's a trajectory changer. If you were here last week, uh, Clark, Jeanette, our uh, new perspective, our college and, uh, college and career ministry here at Grace, 
He did a phenomenal job. He's an intern there, leads that ministry. He did a phenomenal job of talking about the idea of, uh, in John 9, with the man who was born blind, that, that Jesus heals, he opens his eyes, he gives him sight. And Clark said, that, uh, the man said to the religious leaders, all I know, I don't know anything else, but all I know is that I once was blind, but now I see. And Clark talked about how that one simple pivotal moment changed the course of this man's life. And I love the way Clark put it. He said, this, it, this whole moment and seeing Jesus altered his life's, he said, trajectory. I thought that was so good. And I actually think when we approach evangelism, when we approach neighboring, it's the same. We bring to it a lot of baggage, but we should check that with what God says because if there is a pivotal thought that God has for us, it might just equally change the entire trajectory of how we view other people and how we view our role in this mission of God to land the story of Jesus into other people's lives and contexts. So here, here what we have this morning is I'm going to actually ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Uh, I, I believe what we have in this passage of scripture is exactly that. We have something in this passage that is so pivotal for us to understand that will potentially change the ball game. It will change the dynamics and how we understand and view our role in communicating the story of Jesus to people who are around us. So 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, we're going to go there. Again, here is the point where you as guests, or if you're not a Christ follower, here's the point where you can really engage and make some observations for us. That'll, that'll be fun. Um, so we're going to turn there. Um, if you have a Bible, great. Uh, that's awesome. The uh, words to the passage, or the, the words, the lyrics. <laughs> um, the passage is going to be up on the screen behind me. Um, if you did not bring a Bible today, shame on you right now. Just kidding. If you didn't bring a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat backs that are in front of you. I want to encourage you to follow along. If you follow along in those Bibles, the passage will begin on page 805. And uh, I would also say this, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, or if you have an archaic or older translation of the Bible that you really don't connect with, it doesn't make any sense to you, we actually want you to take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you, uh, to hopefully land the story of Jesus uh, with you in your own context a little bit. So go ahead and do that. But we're gonna, well, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going we're gonna to read 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. We're going to read it all the way through. And then we're going to go back and kind of take it verse by verse, maybe a couple verses at a time. And I'll show you what I mean by why I think that this one passage holds a pivotal perspective changer, a trajectory changer for us if we call ourselves Christ followers. And then it also, this passage, what's beautiful about it is, is it gives us this, this game changer, this perspective changer, and then also shows us how the paradigms in our lives or our thought processes or our perspective toward neighboring and evangelism and sharing Jesus' story, how that actually plays out in the role that God has for us as Christ's followers. So let's just go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. I'll read that for us. Paul says here to the Corinthian church, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he, meaning Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Now really watch this here in verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Check this out. And he has committed to us the message of this reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing passage, amazing passage. And I actually love the way Paul starts to unpack these concepts for us. It's a very, what I might call like a linear thought line. Paul strategically begins in verse 14 so that he can get to the place where we start to see others differently in light of Jesus, as well as to understand better how God has designed the role of a Christ follower in terms of connecting the story of Jesus with other people. So let's go back to verse 14. Let's just take verse 14 and verse 15 real quick. And again, that'll be back up on the screen. Again, here's what Paul says. Let's read this again. For Christ's love compels us. All right, let's stop right there. For Christ's love compels us. Right out of the gate, Paul is telling us something that we have to know if we are going to get our perspectives realigned with God on why neighboring, why reaching out to people with the story of Jesus is so important. He says, for Christ's love compels us. I love, I love how Paul does this. He, he basically is talking about the love of Jesus as expressed in his sacrificial death for people on the cross, his sacrificial death and his resurrection. This idea of love in this particular context is referring to Jesus' death, but it has this idea that the, the, the death of Jesus was the fullest expression of God's love in Christ for people. Despite where they were at, Jesus sacrificed, loved sacrificially so that he could bring people and connect them to God. He says Christ's love is what actually drives Paul and his ministerial cohort or his ministerial group. He says Christ's love compels us. And I I actually love this word compels because in the Greek it has this idea of, of like constraining or, or squeezing or pressing in. And I think what Paul is intending to mean is that like it is the message of the gospel about God's love for people in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that is the thing that drives Paul's newly found perspective in how he views neighboring, how he views evangelism, how he views sharing the story of Jesus. He says, Christ's love compels us. And I, I think of it like this. Actually, compels us is more like driving a car. So obviously, if you have a car, you um, would hopefully wouldn't just allow the car to sit there. The car is designed and intended to get you to point from point A to point B. Now, along the way, there is a specific road or a path that you must take to get you from point A to point B. 
And along the way, unless um, you have a very straight shot, there's going to be a lot of twists, a lot of turns on the road. There's going to be some U-turns. There's going to be some right turns. There's going to be some stray straights. You ever heard that, by the way? How does one stray straight on the road? Just curious. I hear that on the Garmin all the time. Stray straight at the light. Yeah, I, I go with the British guy. Thanks. I go with the British guy all the time. But on the way, on this road, there is going to be no way that the car by itself gets from point A to point B. There's no way that the car can do that by itself. The car must have someone behind the steering wheel in order to navigate the twists and the turns on the road, the right turns, the left turns, in order to get the person from point A to point B. And this is really what Paul's driving at here. No pun intended, right? This is what Paul's driving at. It's the love of Christ that changes the perspective. And because this is the perspective changer, it is the thing that drives and helps us navigate as Christ followers this road to the destination of a realization of what Paul will say here in a few verses, that we are actually God's ambassadors, that God is actually making his appeal for reconciliation through us. And here's what Paul is getting at. He says, Christ's love compels us. This is the thing that drives us. Why? And now he's going to get to the subterranean level of what drives us. And it is nothing short and nothing more than the core nugget of the gospel message at work. This is what he says. He says, because we are convinced, and here's what I've underlined and bolded for you, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he said, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is the perspective shift. Now, I know a little something about perspective shifts, okay, in my own experience. I'm sure you do too, but allow me to just, just reinforce this point just, just a little bit more before we, we talk about what exactly Paul means here. So, in my history, in my experience, I have had a few specific points where one small little detail, one small illumination brought about a redefinition of everything that happened in a given experience. And here's, I'll provide you an example. About five or six years ago, and it actually happens to be in the context of attempting to share my faith with someone or share my faith in Christ with someone. So about five or six years ago, I was... Um, it was a Saturday, Saturday afternoon, it was a beautiful day, it was summer. I was hanging out with my family, and uh, we were in the backyard. We were, I was playing basketball, my kids were kind of around, I was being goofy, and if you know anything about me, you, you may think what you're getting here right now is, is me, and it's a little boring and stale, but I gotta tell you guys, I'm pretty wacky, okay? I'm pretty crazy. <laughs> And I, I actually love to have fun with my kids. I love to be super crazy and zany with my kids. So obviously, I'm in the backyard. I'm playing basketball. My kids are playing. But I'm doing silly little trick shots with the basketball. I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs for no reason. I'm going, I'm just going crazy, you know, doing fun stuff with my kids. And uh, at one point, I noticed that uh, two of my daughters, they had taken little hair clips out of their hair, and they had set them on a little window ledge uh, at our, on our garage. So I decided just to be zany and crazy, and I walked over to the window ledge, and I grabbed, I grabbed a couple of these hair clips, and I, I put them in my hair. So I've got, and I had really short hair at the time, so I've got like four or five flowery pink and purpley hair clips just dotting the landscape of my head up here. 
And so my kids are laughing. Obviously, you don't think it's funny. That's okay. My kids thought it was funny, right? So I am out there with my kids. They're laughing. We're all having a good time. And um, I, I, shoot, I shoot a basket. The ball caroms off because I can't shoot worth a hill of beans. And it starts to go up the driveway toward the street. And I go and I turn to run and grab the ball. And lo and behold, I see two people in ties and white button-ups suit jackets, and it's a hot summer afternoon, okay? And they're walking down my driveway with two books that look remarkably like this. And so I'm thinking, oh, wow, I've got some Jehovah's Witnesses who are coming to share their version of the gospel with me, to share their version of the story of Jesus. And I thought, here I am, I had just gotten out of school. I went to school for biblical studies. I had just gotten out of school, I was in that point in time where I had actually started to do some research on what Jehovah's Witnesses believed, and I thought, it's on. It's on. So um, they're coming down the driveway, and I start going up the driveway, maybe with a little swag. I'm, I'm sorry, I have to admit it. Terrible moment, but a little swag like, oh, hey, guys, I didn't notice you there. <laughs> How's it going? So they, they come, and I sort of meet them in the middle of the driveway, and they introduce themselves with a smile, and they give me a handshake, and I introduce myself as well. And they start asking me the questions that, that, that you typically get asked. And most of us try to avoid these discussions, right? When we see, when we see uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or anybody who, who looks or smells or, yeah, looks or smells like they might want to have that awkward conversation ringing your doorbell. But I swag up to them. That, that, is, that is now a verb. I swag up to them. And we start connecting, and they start giving me their story. And I'm listening, and I listen for a while. And uh, suddenly, they, they kind of pause, and they ask me a question. And I, I think I might have said, are you done? <laughs> I mean, how rude is that? That's not neighboring, by the way. That is not making an authentic relational connection with the people around you. So I said, are you done? Okay, great. And so suddenly, I launch into this gospel spirit. I'm going to call it a gospel spiel. I just inundated these guys with so much information that probably in hindsight, again, with this perspective shift that I'm going to talk to you about in a second, with this perspective shift, I look in hindsight and I'm like, all these guys wanted to do was get out of there. That's all they wanted to do. But here I am, fresh out of Bible college, dispensing the truth of God from on high to these lowly people. And I go through the whole spiel, and we actually did get, we started to interact. It was, it, was, it was a good conversation. They were very kind, despite my arrogance. And we shook hands at the end of the day. Nobody came to know Jesus. <laughs> and they went on their way. And I, I realized, I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of disappointing. But I, I, was still, I was still proud of myself. I was really proud of myself. And I turned, and I still had a little bit of that swag, and I walked back to the back with where my family was, and I swagged back on back there. And I looked up, and my wife and my kids are laughing hysterically at me. I had failed to realize, and when I finally got it, I still had the four or five hair clips in my hair and totally forgot. So here I am with eloquence, with Bible knowledge, with a winsome personality and four flowery purple and pink hair clips in my hair. 
I tell you what that did for me, though. As, as funny as that is, and you can imagine, that I should have brought hair clips as an illustration piece and actually put them in my hair. But I, I thought about this. I, I thought, wow, I had a certain interpretation of how that whole thing went down. I was pretty proud of myself. I did it, Jesus. I told the truth about who you were to somebody. Nailed it. Checked the box. Evangelized. Until I walked back and there was a pivotal piece of information that I had forgot that when it was brought back to life totally changed the perspective on how effective I thought that interaction was. Total perspective changer. It's that kind of perspective changer that is the gospel of Jesus Christ when we're talking about thinking through our role in neighboring. Paul again says, it's Christ's love that compels us. It is the love of Jesus to sacrifice for our sake, for our sins, to bring us back, as Paul says here, to a reconciled relationship with God. That's the motivation, and that's the game changer. The game changer for Paul is the gospel, that Jesus died for all. And if you're confused about what all means, all means all, and that's all, 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 always mean. That one died, that Jesus Christ died for all, and therefore all who place their faith in him, Paul will clarify that later in the passage, all who place their faith in him have that death almost credited to their account. So Paul, in giving a short form of the gospel message, imports a lot of what the gospel message actually is, this radical sin, radical grace, and radical love. In saying that Christ's love compels us and that he died, he died for all, Paul is again importing this notion that all the way back in the early pages of the Bible, that God has tried to tell us through this book that we are radically sinful. That God created humankind, God created you and me in a unique way so that he could have a special and unique relationship and interaction with us. And what we find throughout the Bible from Genesis 3, the third chapter in the entire Bible, all the way through to the point of Jesus and beyond, is that unfortunately we now, if God created us, if God created everything good and, and if he created us to, to interact with him in this unique and special way, if we are his, what the Bible will call image bearers, and if he created us that way, that actually if what was good and pleasing and life-giving that he poured into us, there is this thing that happened in Genesis 3 that when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, were disobedient, they allowed this thing that Paul will say here in the passage, they allowed something called sin to enter the world. And, and if we could describe sin as nothing else, it is simply this, this powerful force that every human being that's ever born is enslaved to, and it's a powerful force that at every turn attempts to thwart the purposes of God. And if we think about what the Bible says about God's purposes for his relationship with you and me, his purpose for humanity, if God's purpose was life, what does Paul say elsewhere? The wages of sin, this power that's got a hold of us and has gripped us, the wages of sin is death. So what God intended for life and what God intended for relationship and what God intended for wholeness and purity 
security and connection, sin becomes the power and the principle to thwart the plan of God that has a hold in us. That because of that, we have death. Because of that, we have a broken relationship with God. Because of this now, the Bible describes that that relationship that was designed by God to be freely flowing between him and humanity is now broken, it's fractured, it's dysfunctional beyond any repair that we could actually move to try to fix. So in importing all of that, Paul reminds us that we are radically sinful from birth, that sin has so enslaved us and has a power over us. But Paul also speaks about this next element or movement in the gospel message, that if we are radically sinful, that because of God's love in Christ, again, Christ's love compels us it's the driving factor because we become convinced that God's radical grace, his favor on us to want to renew and restore the broken relationship that was due to sin. That God's grace has now entered the equation and offered people, all of us, an opportunity to connect with the story of Jesus and his saving work on the cross. Paul says that one died for all. That for is a big word because that means that Jesus now is the representative of those people who place their faith and their trust in him. He is not only a representative, but he is a substitute. That though we deserve death because we rejected a life with God and chose sin, that despite that, God offers a way out, and instead of us dying the death that we should have died, Christ takes the hit for us. If there is never again a more loving, there's never again a more loving or a greater expression of true, authentic, self-sacrificial love than what we find in the fact that Jesus was sent for our sins. So Paul starts with the gospel in 14 and 15. He steers us down that right road and he says that Jesus represented Christ followers by taking our place, by dying the death that is the result of sin and then being raised to a new kind of life and that's the kind of life that he promises to his followers. It's not just dying the death, it's also coming into this brand new, as Paul will say, new creation kind of living and that God is established in himself something that the, that the passage calls or that Paul calls reconciliation, that the hostility between man and God, that God has now offered a way to mend this relationship and to bring about peace so that reconciliation in the gospel brings about a new relationship, repairing the broken one that was caused by sin. Now, I think, again, this is so pivotal for us because the next two things that Paul brings up, these two paradigm shifts, are motivated from this perspective or trajectory changer that we find in verses 14 and 15. So check this out here, verses 16 through 18. Here's the first paradigm shift we're going to talk about too. The gospel at the core reorients or radically redefines our perspective with two, in two ways. First, how we view other people, and secondly, how we view ourselves. So let's talk about the first paradigm shift that Paul goes through. Verses 16 through 18, paradigm shift number one, how we see other people. Here's what he says. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The so from now on 
is from the point that a Christ follower placed their faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So that from that point forward, the Bible is saying here, that person, the Christ follower, doesn't any longer regard people from a worldly point of view. Well, what does Paul mean here by a worldly point of view? Well, the reality is, is that this brokenness that sin caused, this fracturing that sin caused between God and man, this brokenness of relationship, isn't just a vertical thing. It didn't just impact the way that we saw or understood God. It actually had some serious impact and implication for how we viewed and how we interact with other people. So when Paul says that we are no longer, because of the gospel, from that point forward when we receive it, when we realize that that's the perspective changer, he says from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Basically what he means is we regard no one from the perspective of sin any longer. That in coming into a new relationship with God in Jesus, Jesus in effect has given us a new set of lenses by which we see and view other people. And Paul is like, if you know Jesus, and if you have been impacted by the reconciliation that he has brought because of his loving and sacrificial death on the cross, your mind is going to start to change. You're going to start to see people not in terms of fleshly, human, the sinful perspective. You're actually gonna start to see people as God sees them. You're not going to regard them any longer from a worldly point of view. Now, I think all of us can, can grasp either from our present experience or our former experience or the things that we find pulling at us quite frequently, I think we can all grasp what that worldly point of view is. It, it looks a little bit like sizing people up. Again, seeing through the, long, through, the, through the wrong lenses. I think of it like this, like the worldly point of view says that I look at somebody who maybe I want to see come know Jesus and I'll actually look at what they've done or what they haven't done and I'll start to make value judgments as to whether they're adequate to receive the reconciliation of God. If, if, if I'm going to be honest with myself, that's, that's exactly what I do. I, I say things all the time about my neighbors, my friends, formerly co-workers. I start sizing people up and I view them from a worldly perspective. I'll say things like, well, look at what they're doing. There's probably not a good chance they're going to accept Jesus. Probably not happening. So maybe I'll just direct my efforts somewhere else. Probably not going to happen. They probably won't accept Jesus. And really, I think what that does is it exposes the worldly point of view that still gnaws at my own heart, and I think really what I'm saying is they don't deserve Jesus. I think more often than not, when we view people from a worldly perspective, when we don't have the clarifying lenses of the gospel that Paul has already provided for us, when we don't have those clarifying lenses when we view people from a worldly point of view, we start to size them up and we say things like, they're not gonna accept Jesus. Look at their lifestyle. And because of their lifestyle, they don't deserve Jesus, right? But what does Paul say? Not only are we to no longer regard people from a worldly point of view, he said, we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. 
What does he say at the first part of verse 18? All of this is from who? All this, all of this reconciliation is from God. All of this is from God. And when we start to take the heavenly perspective, we realize that we are no better off than anyone who was born because we are all born into sin. What this tells me is that the radical paradigm shift of the gospel has a ripple effect in this first way in God's eyes because it's God's gospel. It's God's reconciliation move. We did nothing to earn it, but God offers it to all. There are no lost causes out there. There are no lost causes. So in other words, the guy next door who's having multiple affairs, who I would think and size up and say is too impure to receive the message of Jesus. God's offering reconciliation to that guy. When, when, I, when I look, and again, here, here's stuff that happens in the natural pathway of life. That's what we've been saying in this neighboring series. And even think about like the woman in line at the grocery store with the unruly kids. I think about that. Looking at her from a worldly point of view, looking at her from the flesh is saying, she's screwing up her kids' lives. She's clearly not a good parent. Look at how unruly her kids are. I am starting to develop again this sin-based perspective that she's hopeless. She is hopeless. And because she's hopeless, I take the attitude, the arrogance of saying, she doesn't deserve Jesus. Really, that's, that's what I'm getting at. I think about like the, the, the drug-addicted teen that's across the street, the one that we say a lot, man, he's never going to amount to anything. But the gospel says that it changes the way that we view other people. Because Christ has reconciled us to God, we see that it's all from God. All this is from God. God is the only one who can bring someone from death to life. It's not our persuasion. It's not our ability to tell other people what's wrong with them. It's not our knowledge of scripture. It's not all the things that we bring as baggage to the equation. It actually all has to do with God who reconciles people to himself in the person of Jesus. And as we begin to take on that gospel-centered perspective, it results in seeing other people no longer from the perspective of competition and the social categories that we prescribe to it, like ethnicity or social status or how much money the person makes. All that's been done away with. We actually see people as in desperate need of the gospel. A gospel that says they can't work themselves up to God and establish reconciliation. A gospel that says all that reconciliation is an invitation from God to reconnect in that relationship. So the gospel transforms how we see other people. And then moving on in verse, the second half of verse 18 through 21. The second paradigm shift is not only how we see other people, but it starts to translate into how we see ourselves. Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Check this out, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He didn't count people's sins against them. And this is so weighty. This, this next 
sentence is huge. And he, God, has committed or entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And as Christ's ambassadors, Paul says, we implore you, we beg you, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you see this? Like, the gospel changes how we view ourselves. It's saying if you are a follower of Jesus, you are the way that God is making his reconciliation pitch, the pitch of reconciliation in Christ. You're the way that God is making that real to those around you. Paul says that if you're a Christ follower, you automatically sign up and you automatically take on the role of something he calls an ambassador. So what is an ambassador in this context? I, I think we have a little bit of a good idea of what that might mean even in our um, American uh, political or governmental system. So if you think about uh, the U.S. House of Representatives or even the, uh, the Senate or the, the, the Congress as a whole, Really, when you think about a representative, it's kind of like an ambassador. So what do we do? We elect a representative, and we elect them to speak on our behalf and embody the values of our region or our state, and we send them to Congress to faithfully reproduce our values in Congress, which representatives always do in every case, right? Wrong. But anyway... That's the idea. Think of it as like a representative. And actually, in a first century culture, the, the ambassador would be, would be uh, commissioned by a sovereign, a ruler, or a king to basically do a couple things. Number one, an ambassador would speak the message of the sovereign. So the sovereign would commission an ambassador to, to, uh, to send a message to a foreign country so that the sovereign's heart or what he wanted to communicate to that foreign country could go to the country and that message would connect with them. That the other country would understand and know because the ambassador was there what the sovereign or what the ruler wanted them to hear. But the ambassador wasn't just called in these contexts or these societies to speak the message of the sovereign. There was a second kind of element associated with it. Is that the ambassador was called to also embody the character to embody the character or maybe even the heart of the sovereign. So here is more than just speaking a message because we all know that you can communicate the message of someone else and completely fail to embody the heartbeat of the person that we are carrying the message for. So the ambassador would actually sign up and they would be trained to look, to talk, to think and to act like the sovereign so that when the sovereign or the ruler sent them to the foreign country, it was as though the ruler of that country in the, in the person of the ambassador was standing right in front of the dignitaries or the sovereign of the other nation to which they were going. If we're going to take these two ideas and wrap them together, what we're really saying is this. An ambassador is more than just communicating the right message. The ambassador was called as a person in the role to stand in the place, to stand in place of the sovereign. So here is what is world transforming about the gospel. We see other people differently. The gospel says that Jesus stood in our place to take the hit for us that we might die to the old way of thinking 
and live a new, vibrant, reconciled life to God. Do, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's like, guys, Jesus died for us. He was our ambassador, our representative to God. And for those that place a belief and a faith in him, guess what? You follow him in that, and you become the ambassador or the stand-in in front of the world of everything that Jesus is about, both his message and his character. This message of reconciliation, of a restored relationship with God, and the character and the heart of the God who wants to share life with us. So if we take nothing away, it's this, it's this statement right here, that the gospel says that Jesus stood in our place to secure reconciliation with God. His followers stand in his place to offer it to others. The gospel transforms radically how we view people and also transforms how we see ourselves. And that no longer when we go out and when we operate in society do we think of ourselves in terms of the roles that we occupy. It's either father for me or um, co-worker or son or husband or friend or neighbor. All of these become radically transformed when we realize that above all of these things, I am first and foremost an ambassador I embody and carry the message of Jesus in me in the middle of all those roles that I play. Jesus stood in our place to secure reconciliation with God. His followers stand in his place to offer it to other people. And what does that look like? Man, it looks like neighboring. It looks like serving people relentlessly. It looks like embodying the character of God as he transforms us and and allows this new life to really take root in us. It also does mean speaking on behalf of God. I, I love what uh, Pastor Jeff Bogue at the Bath Campus had said. Uh, he says, how can we speak on God's behalf if we don't know what he said? So recognizing this role as an ambassador for God is serving people. It's embodying this transformational lifestyle it's digging in to know what God said so that we can stand in the place of Jesus and really tangibly offer reconciliation to others. It's awesome. At this point, I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to, we're going to close out here. I think what Paul says is so radically transforming that I'm going to just pose a couple of challenges to two separate audiences as we typically do. And the first is to Christ's followers. The challenge is for you to start viewing yourself as an ambassador in the sense of you may, and I know this may sound cliche, but it's not, you may be the only Jesus that someone will ever see. And that it is God's design for you to be, to embody Jesus, to literally stand in the place of Jesus to offer reconciliation to someone else. You may be the only Jesus people ever see. And here's the deal, Christ followers in the room, there's no plan B. Like You are the plan. Because when you sign up for this great reconciliation movement of God, you automatically become his ambassador. He is the way 
that he is making, or you are the way that he is making his appeal of reconciliation known to everybody. So the challenge for you as a Christ follower, if that's you in this room today, is to no longer start viewing people from a human point of view or from a worldly perspective, to dig in deeper to Christ, to really respond to him in this time of worship that we're going to have together, to respond and ask, okay, God, how are you asking me to look at every single role that I play in my life, and how are you, how are you allowing me to see the reality of the fact that I'm an ambassador in those contexts. God, what are you doing? What are you doing through me? What do you want to do through me? For a Christ follower, if that's you, that's the challenge. What is God? How is God asking you to neighbor and take on this ambassador role in all of your relationships? And I tell you what, uh, for those of you who aren't Christ followers, I had mentioned to you before that this is kind of, you can just kind of do this as a sociological experiment, why Christians do what they do, but I would actually say that uh, if, if that's a benefit to you, if you kind of get a better idea of why Christians uh, reach out the way they do or feel so compelled to, to share the message of Jesus with you, um, that's great. But actually, my hope for you is, is, is a little bit more than that this morning. My hope for you is that you understand and see that the gospel message is the most pivotal thing. It's a world-transforming perspective that Jesus died not just for everybody else, but that Jesus died for you and he offers you the opportunity to be set right with God and that it's a simple faith step away from you claiming that and receiving that reconciliation to a renewed and restored relationship with God. After verse 21, chapter 6 starts, Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 6, in the time of favor I heard you and in the day of salvation I helped you and then Paul says, I tell you guys, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I want to challenge you if you're not a Christ follower in the room and you want access to this amazing relationship with God, now's the time. It's, it's not a time to delay. Now is the opportunity. I implore you on Christ's behalf. I implore you, be reconciled to God. All right? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you so much uh, for the fact that you have made us ambassadors of reconciliation. As Christ followers, Lord, we trust you. And we ask that you would continue to reorient our perspective around how you want to use us in this role to reach other people in every other role of life. And Lord, for anybody else in this room that's wanting to connect and further realize this beautiful reconciliation, this renewed relationship that you've given us in Jesus, Father, I ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would connect and land that message in our hearts that we would realize that Jesus stood in our place. And we have this amazing vocation and call now to stand in, in, in his place. So God, I ask by your spirit that you would do that, that you would touch people's hearts and that you would make this real in our contexts this morning. In your name we pray, amen.